Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for a conversation with investor, venture philanthropist, and beekeeper Paul Growald, chairman and founder of the Coevolution Institute and its pollinator partnership of 120 groups working to protect bees and other pollinating animals throughout the Americas. Paul Growald, welcome to the New School. Thank you very much, Michael. Paul, you are an investor, a venture philanthropist, and a beekeeper, and you are the chairman and founder of the Coevolution Institute and its pollinator partnership, which includes the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign. Uh, that's a collaboration of 120 groups who are working to keep pollinating animals healthy and well throughout the Americas. And uh, I'm really interested in your, your work as a beekeeper, uh, and I'm interested in the crisis uh, that uh, bees and other pollinators are in. I'd like to start just by asking you, I understand you keep a lot of bees at your home up in Vermont. Tell us about your, your bees. Well, I have actually, it depends, depends on what you describe as a lot. I currently have seven hives, uh-huh. which is the most I've ever had. And because I've been lucky to do well this last year, I'm hoping to expand that substantially. But compared to what many, ha- many people have, it's, uh, it's a very small, it's a small right. yeah, back, backyard, yeah. ap- apiary, as they're called. Right. But uh, I got interested, I was interested in... Uh, in bugs starting as a kid, very, very young. Eileen has a uh, picture of me when I'm two in diapers with my nose on the sidewalk looking at ants. That's your wife, Eileen Rockefeller Growell. Yes. Yes. And, um, and I guess I never grew out of that, uh, that stage. When I was in, uh, in high, junior high and high school, I uh, collected insects as a part of a 4-H project. And but I always harbored uh, hope that someday I would be able to keep bees. So when we moved back to Vermont about ten years ago, I uh, actually took over some hives that people who'd been living there previously had, and um, started doing as most people when they get involved in this uh, sort of thing learn learned by reading and talking with lots of people and making uh, making mistakes. Frankly, right. And what do bees mean to you? What, what, what do bees evoke for you when, when you're working with your hives? Well, for, for me, it's a, it's a metaphor for uh, the interconnectedness that we depend on and really the fabric of life, the web of life. Um, it seems to me that there, as I see them coming to and from those hives, it's almost a visible fabric because there are so many of them when they're fully active. And... Uh, it seems to me that though they're, it's like they're making they're making threads between uh, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, and uh, and as well as obviously when they carry uh, pollen from one flower of the same species to another, they're they're allowing new life to uh, exist and also to evolve. So me, I see, and also they're a, they're a social insect. Uh, which which parallels in certain ways what we are as social animals. Yes, I was doing a little research for our conversation, and I, I looked into the mythology of bees. It's a, a very rich mythology. Uh, do you, Have you looked at that at all? 
I have some. I just in fact, I think recently they've discovered the first known um, archaeological evidence of uh, of beekeeping in uh, in Israel, which goes back. I think it's is it three or four thousand years. And interestingly, it it's in an urban area. It was in the middle of a what then was considered a city, and uh, they were they there were chambers that they used to raise honeybees. Uh, really in a wall, and so it goes. It goes very far back. Also, in in uh, of course in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, they describe um, the uh, the land of milk and honey. That's right. And uh, and that's really the first reference to um, uh, to a product that is made by by an insect. I think uh, that's that's known in any uh, in any recorded place. So those and, connections go way way back. Yes, that's wonderful. I I hadn't seen those. I I did run across the the historian Josephus who referred to the uh, poetess and prophet Deborah, and said that Deborah literally meant bee, which is something I hadn't hmm. run across before. I hadn't either. And I also looked into the uh, the Aegean. Uh, uh, trajectory of the mythology of bees, and apparently, they were considered a sacred insect that bridged between our world and the underworld. And the Mycenaean Tholos tombs were shaped like beehives. Hmm. Um, and in fact, uh, what was very interesting to me was that uh, the bees were emblems of the Minoan and Mycenaean mistress Potnia, who was considered the pure mother bee. And of course, the uh, the Delphic priestess that uh, Socrates refers to is referred to as a bee, and um, the and Apollo apparently his gift of prophecy was said to have come from three bee maidens. So we can see that both in the the Jewish and the uh, Greek uh, traditions, uh, the bees are a very very ancient and powerful. Uh, emblem of our connectedness not only to all of life but to uh, realms beyond the realms we understand well and it it, uh, it actually continues today of course in um, in Middle Eastern cultures honey is highly highly valued and it has a sort of not only sacred but uh, but medicinal qualities to it and some of that magic seems to persevere even in our secular American culture there's something about this uh, collapse of the, of the bees that uh, in addition to in addition to its grave uh, economic and ecological consequences it somehow seems to catch us the way the the uh, the threat to the polar bears does the, the, the bees seem to be one of those species that are just deeply iconic for us well and they may they they may be, and, and frankly, I hope they're not, because it's it's uh, it's very it, it's so serious. But they could be uh, canaries. The problems that, the, that again we're talking about honeybees here uh, could be canaries in the coal mine world that we're living in, um, sending us a warning that uh, that we need to treat our surroundings and and all the creatures and plants in it with more care and respect. Than, than we have uh, to date. Tell us 
what we should know about this collapse of, of the, the, the bees, that uh, the colony collapse disorder, it's called. I, I read recently that Jeff Pettis, who's the chief bee researcher for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, reported uh, just last month in November of 2007 uh, that uh, for a second year there's evidence that in Florida, where a year ago, uh, the bee collapse, I think, was first reported, but that it's entering its second year. Do I have that right, or am I... Yes, I have, I've heard the same thing, too, and Jeff actually told me as well that we're going to start getting the, the more, most definitive information about this uh, beginning in January and February, where the story, when the story really broke. It's, um, it's something that uh, actually has been around, been known a bit longer than that, but uh, it's been hitting very mysteriously um, honeybee colonies really in, in uh, more than 30, I think it's up to 36 states. And what happens is over a period of time, it's usually only, only a matter of uh, uh, a couple of weeks or so, a uh, beekeeper will come to the hive and see a perfectly robust hive which has you know, as many as 70,000 bees in them. Um, and, uh, and then will come back in a week later and uh, uh, find that it may be reduced down to four or five thousand, mm. and then uh, a few days after that, may come back and there would only be a queen and a small number of other workers, a handful of others, and there's plenty of stored honey uh, in the hive, so they're not starving, and uh, and there are are plenty of what's called capped brood, which are the uh, baby bees that are pupating and ready to emerge that are also there, but all of them will be, are very vulnerable and will soon die because of uh, uh, they're not being taken care of. Uh, what do we emerge. know is, what do we know about the causes of this, Paul? Well, we actually at this point have no firm evidence of any one factor uh, that's, that's causing us. There was uh, there was some research that found that a virus that was imported from Australia that had also been seen in the Middle East before that might have been causing it because um, it was found in... It's very hard to research because the bees are going off and dying somewhere else and not returning. But they have found some samples and doing work on those, they found the presence of a, a previously unknown uh, virus... And, but what has not happened is the connection between that virus and the actual death of the bees. And Jeff himself speculated that he thinks it's, in fact, probably not that virus because they found it uh, before this happened and they find it in hives that have not um, collapsed. So there are a whole, a whole range of speculative possibilities people have talked about. Um, the one that probably has been most widely uh, heard is an urban myth, and that it's from cell phone signals. Right. Um, and uh, but there are a combination of other reasons. One is is uh, stress that the overwhelming majority of I mean, virtually all. There are a few examples to the contrary, but of colonies that have been lost are uh, in colonies that are moved around the country for pollination of crops. 
and something, frankly, I didn't even know myself until uh, a year or two ago, was that two-thirds, and I was embarrassed when I discovered this, two-thirds of the honeybee colonies that are kept in this country today are not used to raise honey, but are used to provide pollination um, services, to pollinate crops, which range from uh, almonds in California, which are very which use uh, almond growers rent about half the tithes that are currently uh, kept in this country every year. Right. Um, so it ranges from almonds to apples to cucumbers and tomatoes, and it's actually most fruits and vegetables, even things like lettuce, even leaf crops, have to be pollinated in order for their seeds to be fertile. And so it's estimated about one out of every three bites of our food comes from a crop that's pollinated by bees, and it's mostly honeybees. So it's a very, and it's, it also goes, it's, it, it's even more important than that because um, while we depend for calories mostly on grains, you know, it's wheat and mm-hmm. rice, uh, corn that are wind-pollinated, but what provides the uh, nutritional uh, variety, the vitamins and minerals and trace elements and so forth that we get, comes almost exclusively from fruits, vegetables and fruits that are pollinated uh, by honeybees. And they also provide the, the color and the variety and uh, distinctive tastes that are so familiar to us. So they're extremely important to human beings, and in fact, we're going to be talking about Western honeybees, which are not native to North America. Um, if they disappeared, natural systems wouldn't, wouldn't uh, uh, instantly be in, uh, in trouble because they depend on uh, mostly native pollinators. And what's happening to the native pollinators? Let's expand this for a moment. Obviously, the the bees in general, the honeybees specifically, are only one of the sets of pollinators that you're concerned with. What are the other pollinators? Okay, well, bees as a group are the, the most widespread. There, I think they say that they're estimated to be about 4,000 different bee species uh, in North America. Uh, the centers, they're concentrated more than any other place in the southwestern deserts, but... Um, but they also include uh, hummingbird, various birds, hummingbirds, uh, orioles uh, are, are also major pollinators at different times and, and uh, depend on them. Certain, there's one bat species in North America um, which migrates between the southwest over the border into Mexico. Uh, the lesser long-nosed bat that pollinates uh, agave that produces tequila, um, and um, and butterflies do some some pollination, uh, but then there are ones we're familiar with, like bumblebees, um, are are very important to certain uh, certain flowers. And bumblebees, certain bumblebee species have been crashing uh, in different parts of the country. So the formerly most common. Um, Bumblebee species in northern New England uh, has not been found in the la- about in the last five years. I think people may have found one or 
two reported, and that's all. So when a, when, when a, a pollinator community like the bumblebees crash, um, what happens to the f- natural flora and fauna that they were pollinating? Well, it depends. It depends on where, on on where they are. Um, if they're a specialized pollinator, which are um, most common in the tropics, then uh, then that specialized plant or small group of plants that depend on them will also, over time, die because it can't reproduce itself. Um, in in the northern hemisphere, um, there. Uh, plants tend, for the most part, to not depend on any one pollinating species. Um, although, again, I mentioned agave, they do depend on those bats. And coffee, for example, depends on um, uh, depends on a certain um, group of uh, of midges and flies, and even more recognizably, cocoa, uh, which, of course, is the basis for chocolate. If anyone's seen a cocoa bean pod, they're big, big sort of yellow pods, and each cocoa bean in that pod um, is there because of a pollinator visit. And uh, people from the uh, chocolate business, the cocoa business, have told me recently that many of those pods have very few uh, beans in them because they haven't been visited by enough pollinators. It's one specific small midge, and only that species or related species that visits uh, cocoa bean flowers. Um, in North America... Is a midge a kind of bee? It's a kind of fly, actually. It's a kind of fly. And, um, but there, there are other... Um, uh, the fig trees, for instance, in the tropics are the most uh, common group of plants and most dominant um, uh, species or, or family of trees, and most fig trees have one particular species of insect that pollinates them. Extraordinary. And if the cycle for when that tree blooms and the pollinator emerges get out of whack, out of sequence, the tree can be there with flowers and the pollinators not be emerged. So I would imagine, given that relationship between the sequence of flowering and the presence of the pollinators, that climate change is one of the things that must concern you and others working on this. Yeah, very, very much. In fact, um, the people who've looked at this feel that pollinators as a group, whether they happen to be uh, birds or bees or or bats or, or butterflies, are most impacted by climate change of any other group of uh, uh, of plants or animals or plants. Well, that that seems like a pretty disastrous situation because it's clear from the science that we can't reverse climate change overnight. Yes, and what what we've been trying to do is, there are two parts to the challenge of climate change. One is to minimize or mitigate what's actually happening, but the other is to manage uh, the effects and uh, in in ways that don't that are not irreversible, and that's why um, those of us working on this issue have chosen to focus on pollinators because there are things that can be done, and in many cases they cost little or no money and sometimes save money that can improve 
the health of pollinator populations. You are one of the founders of the Pollinator Partnership I mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation, 120 groups that are seeking to protect the pollinators. Um, You've been really active on the policy front on this, trying to uh, get into the Farm Bill recommendations for habitat protection and uh, research and so forth. Uh, What is the current status of your effort to get the federal government to respond to this crisis of bees and other pollinators? Well, in in terms of the Farm Bill, there are two versions. The one that has passed the House has incorporated into two separate bills that, first of all, make uh, pollinator habitat uh, maintenance and improvement eligible for farm bill payments under the various conservation titles of the farm bill. And then secondly, uh, to uh, authorize more uh, significantly increased funding for both honeybee research and for native pollinator research. And the Senate version has um, also has similar uh, provisions in it, and the chairman's mark of that, but that hasn't yet been passed by the Senate. So we're hopeful that um, that these two provisions will remain in there, number one, and that number two, when it gets down to deciding what monies are there in the budget for the Agriculture Department, that they'll actually be there for the research. Um, so this is a very important development. Um, there also have been more than half the land area of the U.S., uh, uh, I should say federal agencies, that control more than half the land area of the U.S. have signed agreements saying they acknowledge the importance of pollinators and, uh, in effect, are authorizing people within them to undertake changes and uh, uh, to pay attention to pollinators, which hadn't happened before. I would think that big agribusiness would be a tremendous ally of yours on these issues. I mean, don't they stand to uh, have a really disastrous outcome if they don't have uh, the pollinators available? Well, Michael, it really depends on what the the crop or what the business is. Um, Most so if they're almond growers, for instance, who are expanding their acreage very quickly and seeing their ability to rent honeybee hives shrinking, uh, they've suddenly got very interested in this after spending years of trying to breed uh, breed trees that didn't need to have be pollinated. Mm-hmm. Um, but frankly, most business, most uh, agribusiness, and uh, well, most farmers on the ground have got so many different problems to deal with mm. that um, that it's hard for them to focus on something that's this far removed from you know from their day-to-day operations and the same thing most food companies are uh, you know they don't produce very few of them produce just one kind of food uh, or one one kind of uh, crop they they're more diversified and so they're generally concerned even the American Farm Bureau Federation that represents a whole range of different kinds of farmers has been very supportive of this work. And it's a, one of the reasons that, that I chose to start focusing on pollinators, Michael, is because uh, people talk about biodiversity. 
And the biodiversity is such an abstraction. It's hard to kind of see why, why do we really need to have uh, as many different species and populations of living things around us. Um, but pollinators are a way that we can really see the connection between that healthy diversity of life and our own daily living. Um, so they're really a, a, a way to make uh, the importance of keeping all our surroundings healthy, not just uh, you know wilderness areas or rural areas, but but suburbs and cities and our literally our own backyards. I'm talking with Paul Growald, the chair and founder of the Coevolution Institute and one of the founders of the Pollinator Partnership. 120 groups who are seeking to protect pollinators throughout the Americas. That raises the question of the status of pollinators in the rest of the world. Uh, I've read that in Europe there is concern about uh, uh, the collapse of uh, the bees. And in, in Europe, I believe they were concerned with a particular uh, pesticide that they thought uh, its introduction coincided with the collapse of the bee colonies. Am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yes, and I think they have banned that group of, they're called neonicotinoids, which are synthetic nicotine compounds um, that were thought to be concentrated in the pollen uh, within honeybee colonies. But um, evidently the... the Evidence isn't clear enough in our country, and of course there, there are other reasons as well, but the people I've talked with who've looked at it said that, that it's, it's not a smoking gun as far as they can tell because they're, they're dying in areas that are not using these compounds. And is somebody keeping track of the status of pollinators all over the world? In other words, are, are people doing comparative studies of pollinators in Africa and Asia and China and Europe and North America so that there's a, a sort of some kind of census, at least a rough census, of, of what's taking place? Well, um, I think the, the answer is yes and no. Uh, is more happening outside of the United States um, then here, the answer is definitely yes. Uh, in Europe in particular, they've been giving, giving uh, more research money to track these things. And, of course, in Africa and Asia, many of those countries don't have a whole lot of money to put into these things. But they, they are tracking populations um, in those places. But here in the U.S., uh, the, the baseline data, with the exception of honeybees, just isn't there. In other words, for wild pollinators, right. the the National Academy of Sciences did a report that we were responsible for requesting and helping raise resources for. Um, that I think had fifteen recommendations, and nine of them were: we need more data, we need more information. We have fewer people doing research on uh, bees of all kinds today than we did five or ten years ago, because government um, budgets have been slashed so much. So the, ans the answer is, do we have data in other parts of the world? Yes, in some cases better than, quite a few, better than the U.S. But even there, there are just huge, um, huge gaps in our knowledge. And I'll give you an example about why this sort of thing happened. It's a, it's, 
it's sort of like even more than the air we breathe, we've taken efforts to clean up the air. But I met probably seven or eight years ago with the head of the Farm Bill Programs, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, uh, the head of science and technology, uh, and did a brief a briefing on pollinators. And the man leaned back in his chair and looked up at the ceiling and, and says, paused and said, why don't we pay attention to pollinators? Uh-huh. It's just we've taken them for granted. We'll be right back after a short break. And I read somewhere that there's been an effort to to breed uh, honeybees that would uh, be more resilient to the stresses on them. Uh, has that effort yielded uh, fruit, so to speak? <laughs> so to speak. Uh, it, yeah. Well, I think the the answer is no, not to not to date. Um, honeybees are particularly vulnerable. Um, I've been told by the uh, chairman, my May Berenbaum, the chairman of this National Academy study, particularly vulnerable to toxic substances in their environment. And they only have 23 genes um, that allow them to detoxify uh, uh, poisonous substances of various kinds compared to fruit flies that have more than 100. I see. And fruit flies are not what you think of as the most robust species. Um, But um, so they really haven't um, been able, they haven't even been able to um, breed honeybees that are resistant, for instance, to the mites that uh, have over the last uh, 15 years or so been increasing in numbers. Um, and those mites, in turn, may be a, a sign of just uh, distress. I mean, do the mites show up when resilience goes down? Is it one of those dynamics? Well, yes. It's like any, like anything else, and I should go back to the, the possible causes of, of this honeybee collapse uh, uh, problem that's developed. They, the best thinking of the researchers who I've talked with, and they're really the top people in the country are pretty much entirely working with our, uh, all included in our uh, our work, is that it's not any one particular uh, problem that is causing this disappearance, but uh, a combination of factors, and one of them. Could is very likely the mites. People, the uh, honeybees get the varroa get, mite. The varroa mite, and there's right. also a tracheal mite um, that has been spreading. It was naturally in these populations, and like many imported species, eventually is caught up, and uh, it weakens them. If they're already stressed, then that uh, that weakening is more likely to take its toll on more individuals. Um, the the um, the one speculation of the of the problem is that it may be caused by importing um, honeybees from Australia to make up for those that are being lost here, and um, uh, since Australia, of course, has a much generally more uh, more even climate and a and a warmer climate than 
we do in much of North America, um, the bees are not accustomed to the great swings of temperature we have and having to winter over. And secondly, um, they're not accustomed to dealing with varroa mites because they don't have varroa mites in Australia. The National Academy of Sciences report that you described also talked about the possible uh, effect of antibiotic-resistant pathogens and pesticide-resistant mites and the encroachment of the Africanized honeybees. So as you said, there's just a whole pattern of uh, different potential contributors to this. Exactly. And there are, there are more and more ways that, um, that honeybees are finding to treat their bees for mites. Um, and, and as it turns out, when, when I started 10 years ago raising, uh, raising my hives, there were uh, a number of feral uh, colonies of honeybees that had swarmed and escaped from uh, beekeepers in the area, and they were in bee trees. Uh, around the farm, and uh, one of them that was one of my favorites, it's near the sugar bush where we tap trees every spring, um, had year after year, even after the mites arrived, there were uh, bees in that tree, and two years ago, they disappeared. And what's happened to your your hives? Have your hives survived so far? Actually, my, my hives have done better than they've ever done, and um, I actually attribute it, frankly, as much as much to my own uh, uh, learning curve mm-hmm. as as I do to anything else. Uh, the weather has been, in some years, it's been either extremely cold for longer periods of time, and normally in the New England, uh, there'll be a, spr- uh, a midwinter thaw, for example, when the bees can go out and fly around and clean out their hives. We've had a number of years where that didn't happen. And uh, then we had a number of other years where it's been so warm that they go out and fly around and use up their honey stores. So even so, on any extreme, if there's more variability or change, um, all creatures tend to be uh, more vulnerable. Do we know whether the... Uh whether the, I don't know what to call the, I would say, hobby beekeepers or, or beekeepers of uh, hives that are not transported around the country on trucks to pollinate plants, uh, do we know whether those hives in general are faring better than the commercial hives that are transported around? Uh, yes, and there have been very few losses uh, to colony collapse disorder by resident hives that are used to uh, produce honey. Uh, Most of them have been by large commercial beekeepers who have big trucks that they carry the hives around and rent them to farmers. Uh, And nutrition, the nutrition of those hives is another possible contributor to, uh, to their losses. When bees are, for instance, rented to pollinate a, uh, an apple crop, for instance, or a safflower crop or sunflower crop, they're only getting the, um, um, the pollen from those particular crops. It, they're not getting the normal variety of different floral sources that they'd have if they were in one place. And some of those are notoriously um, not good sources of, uh, of protein. So, for instance, apple blossoms 
don't actually give very much um, pollen, and it doesn't tend to be as uh, nutritious as some other kinds. I read that the bees get their protein from the pollen, but they get their energy from the nectar. How does that work? Well, it's a, it's sort of this is a, this is a dance between flowers and uh, and their pollinators. The flowers produce uh, sweet stuff, produce nectar, which which then uh, honeybees and many other insects and butterflies and hummingbirds, for instance, then it's a sugar source, and they come and collect it, and they get their carbohydrates, they get their food energy from that. It doesn't actually help the flower at all except attracting the pollinator. And, and in return, then they also, of course, produce protein-containing um, uh, pollen, which is almost like bee bread, and and um, so they're they're giving something to the insects and other creatures that are pollinating them, and uh, and they're getting then the carrying of the pollen, which is based, is plant sperm from one to another, from the male to the female plant, from the male to the female plant or parts of the plants. So really, the when uh, just such an extraordinary uh, world opens up when one begins to look at bees. Really, bees are, are for many, many plants, the trans- transmission of uh, uh, sexual energy and insemination from male to female. Exactly. I mean, yeah. that's just, that, that, and, and, and in fact, uh, some people, just as an aside, some people who have hay fever, and I'm, and I'm one of them, um, think, thought for a long time that, well, if you, if you ate bee pollen, uh, it would help... Um, uh, boost your immune system against the, um, uh, the the pollen that's causing you to sneeze in the springtime. Well, it turns out that the pollen that we sneeze from is windborne pollen, um, and because it's light and gets carried by the wind, and the pollen that bees gather is heavy. They need to have some creature that carries that pollen from one flower to the other in order to produce their seed. And I believe the the bees have a positive electrostatic charge, so the pollen sort of sticks to them. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. Some more than others, but most of them have some. The ones that are kind of furry, that's why butterflies, for instance, uh, will carry some pollen, but bees much more because most of them are pretty hairy. And as they fly, they pick up those those charges. Now, you mentioned that that bees, uh, like us, uh, are a social animal. And uh, I have a friend uh, out here, Walter Murch, who told me the most extraordinary story about bee intelligence that I want to check with you. Uh, He told me that um, if you start moving a beehive, um, somebody did this experiment, uh, 30 feet each day in a northeastern, for example, direction, or each week, I forget how often it was done, but at some regular basis, the hive moved a certain amount of space, and the bees would have to re-figure uh, out, re-acclimatize themselves to where their hive was each uh, on each successive occasion. What Walter Murch told me was that if you did this for a while, the bees would learn to show up at the place where the hive would be moved to next. In other words, they were actually calculating 
the direction of the movement of the hive and showing up uh, where they now knew the hive was likely to arrive. That's fascinating. That's that is. Uh, Isn't that an extraordinary story? Yeah, well, it really is. It may be, a, it may be a, an exurban legend, but I believe Walter Murch is a man of uh, a, you know scientific precision, and I believe that it's actually true. But I guess the question I had to wanted to ask you is, what do we know about collective bee intelligence? What is the hive? After all, I mean the, the bees are individual bees, but the hive functions. Uh, in an extraordinarily competent collective way. Uh, do we know much about the collective intelligence of bees? Well, we, we actually do quite a bit, again, because they're valuable, particularly to us. We've studied them more than uh, honeybees more than any other, uh, I think any other single insect, in fact. Um, and one of the things that we know that Edward Wilson points out is that uh, bees and humans share... Um, one very important characteristic in common, and that is that they're outstanding communicators. And they, um, but the difference is we communicate visually and verbally, and they communicate almost entirely chemically. They do dance to show the others the direction of flowers, but most of what they, uh, their communications is by secreting different uh, pheromones or different chemicals. And we, for instance, know the progression that all uh, honeybees go through in their lifetime. When they're first hatched um, and, and uh, uh, come out of their, their cells, their pupae, uh, they become nurse bees. So it's like the young children in... Uh, poorer parts of the world who the first thing they do when they can be helpful is take care of their younger siblings. And that's exactly what honeybee workers do. What do they do after that? Well, they they migrate through a whole range of roles. I think the next one is that they clean out the hive mm-hmm. and uh, take waste products and, and uh, get them to the outside or pass them off. And uh, then they migrate to... Um, taking care of, for instance, stamping down the the food, the uh, pollen that comes in that gets stored, and uh, capping off the um, those the hun- hives with honey uh, cells with honey in them, or with uh, pupating um, baby bees. Are they specialized to different roles in the hive, or, uh, other than by? Um by age sequence, uh, or do they simply specialize by age sequence, but otherwise have the same roles? They have they have the same. Uh, the only one that 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 uh, has something different than this is the queen. Right. And her job, she can't even feed herself. Right. Uh, and basically, neither can the drones who are there to provide fertilization of the of a queen and nothing else. Um, but they all go through an age sequence, I see. and they and only live on average about twenty-eight days. Oh, really? I had no idea. I thought bees lived longer than that. No, they—they they, um, except for the ones that are uh, hatched in the fall uh, when they're getting ready to be wintered over. They'll live as long as six months, and one of the reasons for that is that. Um, uh, is that they they're not flying around and wearing themselves out. Um, one of the 
one of the roles that one of the jobs that they play. And by the way, honeybees are the the workers that are that are at least ninety percent of all hives are all female, uh-huh. and they are uh, unless they're fed royal jelly, they're not able to produce any eggs, and they do the work of the hive. Um, one of the things they do is they fan the hive to keep air circulating and moisture uh, um, exiting from the hive. Hmm. And uh, over time from doing that, either flying around, they go through a whole sequence, and the last thing they do before they die is, um, is they are field bees. And so if you open up a hive and... Uh, the top of it and they get upset and fly around, the young ones that are in there will not be able to find their way back because they haven't been oriented yet to what it's like to be out of the hive. Um, and um, the, when I was sealing mine up or getting mine ready for the winter um, about six weeks ago, I noticed, uh, I watched sort of appalled as one of the workers got literally kicked out of the front of the hive, hmm. and uh, she was perfectly able to move around, and I looked more closely and saw that her little wings had been worn down to only about half their normal length from fanning. That had been something she'd been doing for a long time. Amazing. And, uh, and So who she- are the males? If the, if the, there, I, I know about the queen bee, and I know about the drones, and then you say most of the... Uh, other bees are female. Who are the males? The males are the drones. Oh, the males are the drones. Drones and drones. Drones are very delicate. They're bigger. They're about two or three times the size of workers, um, and they can fly, uh, but they really can't feed themselves, and uh, they don't have stingers. So when I go go to talk to school groups about bees, I always bring some drones with me and uh, let them. Hmm. crawl on children's hands to see how, in fact, gentle they are. How much do we know about the medicinal qualities of honey? And uh, what is the other product of bees that is used medicinally? I've, I've forgotten what it's called. Uh, propolis. Propolis. Okay, well, first, in the last, uh, actually, probably two or three weeks, there have been two separate studies that have been released. One is that uh, feeding, um, feeding honey to children that uh, when they have a cough, uh, they would estimate if it was done broadly would reduce visits to doctors by children by 10 to 15 percent. No kidding. Um, And it's in many cases better than things we buy in the store. Uh, Of course, that's an old, old remedy that uh, most of us have heard about in the past. You know, sometimes having honey and brandy together, Mm -hmm. but it's really the honey Mm -hmm. that does it. Uh, the other is that there have been studies about uh, the, new, the um, medicinal pro- properties of honey or the, the um, metabolic uh, properties of honey as a sweetener versus um, sucrose and, and fructose that we get, that honey is evidently has superior nutritional qualities mm-hmm. to it and, and uh, are better able to help us um, metabolize the, the food and the sugars that we're consuming. And what about propolis? And propolis is uh, the sap from different plants that is collected and chewed up and used as a paste 
to seal off holes in um, uh, gaps and holes in the hive, whether it's in a hive that a human being is, is, um, has created for them or in a tree somewhere. And it has very strong antibiotic properties to it. Mm-hmm. So you'll rarely see um, a fungal infection, for instance, in, uh, in a beehive. Uh-huh. So people make tinctures of it, and that does it unquestionably have antibiotic properties to it. So going back to the, the bigger challenge, one of the ventures that I believe you were involved with is creating these beautiful pollinator stamps that I've been using on my mail, getting from the post office. Tell us how those stamps came to be. Well, we... Um when we created the, the Pollinator Partnership, which started out as being called the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign, this is too long to remember, mm-hmm. although it describes it very well, uh, an early project that we decided to undertake was uh, as a public education uh, vehicle and, frankly, as a, as a fundraising vehicle to get approval of a semi-postal stamp which is like the, um, we're all familiar with the breast cancer stamp, where some of the money from it goes to the cause. And we pursued that for uh, about two or three years and realized that that just was not likely to happen in the near future and switched over to uh, our campaign to convince the U.S. Postal Service to produce uh, a series of stamps on pollinators which when we made that shift, it was only about three years from the time um, that we proposed the idea, which was selected from, they say, 30 to 50,000 nominations every year, uh, till they produced this magnificent block of four commemorative stamps. And they were the first commemoratives, I believe, after uh, the postal rate increased to 41 cents. Uh, the post office printed 700 million of them in um, in blocks of uh, um, what is it? Four about was it 12 stamps each? I think so. I think it was 12 yeah. stamps that are in a lot of stamp machines. And we um, so when people are using those stamps, and of course it's mostly private uh, mail that uses them. Not only does every person who puts the stamp onto the envelope see these beautiful images of pollinators, um, but then some of the recipients will also pay attention. Yeah, they're very, very beautiful. It's, it's, been, it's been wonderful to see how, um, you know, it, when bad things happen, there's always some good that comes out of it. Yes. And in this case, when the colony collapse disorder happened in a matter of... Um, less than two months, people who had uh, thought of honeybees as just flying honey factories, um, in fact, suddenly realized that, no, they're important to us as pollinators. So the Pollinator Partnership began well before the colony collapse disorder took place. When did it start? Well, it started uh, in 1999. We first uh, had our first uh, our first meeting and describe the trajectory of its growth pre and post development of the colony uh, collapse disorder. In other words, did it really take off after the uh, disorder developed a year ago? Well, our, uh, actually, in terms of the attention to the issue, yes. In terms of the participation um, in in the actual collaboration. 
that hasn't changed a whole lot. It's just those who are working on it are getting a lot more attention. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, our strategy is to not, not to make this pollinator partnership a household word, but to embed pollinator-friendly practices in, um, and encourage pollinator-friendly practices within really every sector of, of our society that uh, controls or influences land. And uh, in other words, whether it's our own backyards, uh, looking to landscape with flowers that will be, and hopefully native flowering plants, favorable to pollinators, or on a landscape le- level for, for uh, uh, millions of acres managed by a federal agency, or highways, for instance, that are currently planted with grass can be planted with native uh, pollinator-friendly plants. Here's my wife, Cheryl Patton, uh, uh, in in our one-acre plot, uh, tries to plant almost exclusively uh, plants that attract uh, bees and hummingbirds and butterflies and so forth. So she's had an instinct for that for a long time. But you're saying that, that people can actually make a difference by doing that in our own yards and in our own gardens and communities. Exactly. And we can, what, what, what's been um, uh, a great joy for me is to, as, as we've planted more and more um, pollinator-friendly plants in our own gardens, is to see the, uh, it, it adds, in addition to the flowers and uh, vegetables and fruits that we raise, we're also raising and supporting all these marvelous uh, creatures who are there uh, but in fewer numbers, they're going to be there. You plant, plant an attractive plant, and they will come. So sitting in the garden or, or frankly, even sitting um, out in an unplanted area where there are any kind of flowering plants, paying attention to pollinators adds a whole other level of enjoyment to an experience in the outdoors. So what... What can people do to help pollinators? What If somebody listens to this program and wants to participate in some way, what can they do? Well, one thing is they can go online to www.pollinator.org and, or do a search under Pollinator Partnership. And that is the uh, Pollinator Partnership's website, and it describes a whole range of things that they can do. Of course, um, uh, providing financial support is always the lifeblood of any uh, any nonprofit effort like this and public interest effort. Um, but it, there are, there are a wide range of activities they can um, see curricula uh, that uh, their their children can children's teachers can use in school or in clubs of Girl Scouts or 4-H. Um, to help children learn about it, they can uh, support projects in science. They can find ways to, uh, as you said, plant, uh, identify plants that are friendly for their particular area for pollinators. Um, so there, there are huge possibilities, and one specific one is um, that they can actually uh, contact the pollinator partnership and explore with their local park and recreation department um, making making changes to have more native flowering plants um, and particularly again those species which pollinators particularly like 
What are the governors doing about this? Are there states where governors and uh, legislatures have taken this up? Uh, we had National Pollinator Week as a result of this work declared for the third week in June and uh, of, of this year, and it will happen next year and the year after, uh, actually the fourth week in June. And, and uh, the governors and state legislatures in, in about a third of the state's uh, proclaimed Pollinator Week, as well as nationwide. Is there model legislation at the state level that is being carried by uh, uh, some legislators? Uh, there, actually, again, the Pollinator Partnership has examples of those proclamations and legislation that. Uh, oh, proclamations are one thing, but what about what can one do at the state level to actually help pollinators? Well, one one thing has to do with. Um, uh, with the way that farm bill monies are spent, if someone wants to really get into the details of things, they can ask their state uh, conservationist to um, uh, to provide funding for farmers doing pollinator-friendly things uh, at the edges of their fields. Another is they can talk to the uh, whoever handles the uh, decisions about mowing and planting roadsides in their state and. Um, uh, about how they can diversify what's planted there. Um, and another very specific thing that's happening is the Department of Agriculture is considering a rule to require vegetable growers uh, to basically um, scorch the earth at the edges of their fields uh, and make them devoid of habitat, which would be prime ha uh, pollinator habitat. In other words, to herbicide the edges of their fields. Cause so we should oppose that. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> right. absolutely. I mean, there's a, there there are both positive and negative things yes. that uh, that can be done. Yes, Paul Growald, thank you for your work and thank you so much for being with us at the New School. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.